Let us pray together. Lord, as we come this morning to look again at the life of Abram, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, as your word is opened, we pray that your voice would be heard by your people. Lord, let us hear your voice through your word to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness, that we would be fully equipped for every good work, and that Christ our Saviour would be glorified and honoured. Be with us now, Lord, as we work through this passage. Give us attention and speak to our hearts, we pray. Lord, we also pray for Pastor Dunbar as uh, there's sickness in his family, that you would help them to rest and recover, Lord, and to come back strengthened, Lord, next week. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue this morning in our study of the life of Abraham, who is Abram at the point at which we come to the story now. And the title I've given to the message is Kings and Kings and Kings. In our previous uh, sermon, we've covered God initially giving the promise to Abraham and calling him to go and leave his family. And last week, the passage was mainly focused on the land and the question of whether the land was sufficient or adequate to supply the, uh, the, the promises of God. And in this week, we suddenly see this huge amount of kings being mentioned. In fact, kings are mentioned 30 times in this passage. And whilst this is not a precise way of doing any study of the Bible, I did a little word cloud. For those of you who don't know what a word cloud is, is you take a bunch of words, so I took chapter 14, and you stick it in a computer program, and the larger the word is, the more times it's mentioned in the passage. So you can see that king, or kings, I had to join some of these things together, is the most frequently mentioned word in this passage. And what I would argue is, is not only by statistics, but when we look through this passage, we will realize that the subject of kings is very, very central to this passage. Now, this passage starts out very, with a bit of a sad testimony because it is a testimony to the fallenness of man. Notwithstanding the fact that there was essentially just ten generations that had passed since the ark, since God's judgment had fallen on the world and God's salvation had come, that such wickedness had flourished in the world. No doubt some of that was challenged by the language dispersion that dispersed all the people at the Tower of Babel. But you can just imagine Noah, who was still alive at the time, according to Scripture, to see his progeny not only grow apart, but that they were growing against each other to the point of war to the point of extortion and levying tributes from one another. One wonders whether, Abraham, whether Noah witnessed maybe greater wickedness now than he had seen before the flood. And this brings us to our passage this morning. We're going to be working through a passage which is a little bit difficult because it's got so many names of people and so many different places that we get lost a little bit. And actually, I find it's quite challenging because often if you look in the Bibles which are in, sorry, the maps which are in, the provided in the Bibles, some of these places aren't even mentioned. So it's really hard to grasp what's actually going on. And even the first time that I read this passage, I read this passage and you just kind of like, you just go through the words and it doesn't really register on you. And then you get to Melchizedek and then you're like, okay, I can kind of grasp this is a real part of the story. But we have to remember that all scripture is useful and God-breathed. So let's go through this. So I'm going to be spending some time going through the passage which uh, Stephen Donato managed through pretty well because it's got a lot of, lot of difficult names. So well done to him. 
So I'd like to place us first in our, um, where we are. So another thing that happens in Bibles is that the maps are all with ancient boundaries. So I just went on Google Map, and I, I put a little map up here so you actually know where we're talking about. So there's Iran, Baghdad, Kuwait down here. Uh, you can see the other places mentioned there. So you can actually see where we're talking about. And now what I'm going to be doing is, is as we go through the slides and through this passage, I'll start putting the place names on more or less so you can see where we're talking about. So let's start in verse number one and we're going to be working more or less verse by verse through this passage of scripture. So at the time when Amraphal was king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasa, and Kedolaoma, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and king of Bela, that is Zoah. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidom, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years they had been subject to Kedolaoma, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. Okay, so if you go into the next slide, you're going to see some of the place names that we've just been talking about in the passage. So you can see basically the kings of the east, the four kings which were mentioned, are all from down there. It, now, this map isn't super precise. I mean, I drew these two things on. So if you're planning to go and do any archaeological digs, I, I suggest that you look in something a little bit more precise, but it gives you the grand scheme of things. So you've got the four kings over here, and then you basically got, right here, this is where they were going to go. So these kings over here, in all likelihood, from 12 years prior, the kings had come through, made war, or essentially made them be subject to them. And what that most likely means is that they required some kind of tribute from them. So either they had to send food or grain or meat or something as basically to pay them off. You know, It's kind of like a protection racket or something like that. So you can see these four kings that were essentially allied. So you've got King Kedoleoma, who's the kind of the great king, and then you've got these other kings which are allied with him. Now, the other kings which are mentioned in this uh, passage is the king of Shinar. Now, Shinar is also a name for ancient Babylon, which was actually quite a large kingdom, which actually spread around kind of this whole region over there. So you've got four kings from the east fighting against five kings in the west, and you have essentially two alliances of kings fighting off, fighting off against each other. One wants to shed the yoke of the oppressing kings, and the other ones want to come and reinforce the fact. So basically on the 12th year, they've been giving their, their, um, um, their tributes. And then in the 13th year, they say, well, stuff this, we're not going to do this anymore. And then by the 14th year, we see that the kings come and they um, to essentially claim back their territory and get the tribute which was due to them. So we move on to verse 5. In the 14th year, Kedolaoma... And the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth Karnaim and the Zuzites in Ham. Good, it's a good, an easy name there, finally. And the Emites in Shaveh Keriathaim. Okay? Some nice names there. So basically, you can see that the kings over here, they went over here and they went through these places up here. So 
They still haven't got to the place where they're actually coming to fight. And already before they get to that place, they defeat three whole people groups. Then we go into the next verse. The Horites, so this is in the 14th year, King Kedoleoma and his allied kings, they defeat the Horites, another people group, in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran in the desert. So, Seir over here somewhere, and El Paran is kind of at this little peak here of where the water is. Another two people who have been um, subjugated and crushed by this alliance of kings, in all likelihood, as they've going, been going through, they're acquiring new vassals, so new people that can supply them with things. So essentially, if you don't pay us, we're going to come and you know, wipe you out. The thing to note in this verse 6, like I said, all verses are useful, is that they're defeating people. One, they're doing hill country warfare. And in another group of people, they're doing desert warfare. And when you look at ancient history, these are two, uh, uh, what's this, uh, these are two kinds of terrains which are very difficult to battle in. I remember I was listening to um, a history podcast um, a number of um, months ago, and they were talking about some people in these hillside areas, how difficult it was for any opposing nation to come and conquer them. So you can start to see the strength of this alliance of kings that is going through and plundering this area. So basically... They go to this original set of kings, Ashtaroth, Panaim, and then they bypass the area which they're actually, the intent of their conquest is going for. They go past it, they go all the way down here, and that's not all. So in verse 7, we move on to verse 7. Then they turned back, so once they go all the way down to here, they turned back and they went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. So basically, they went through and they did even more conquest, and they conquered entire territories belonging to two more peoples. And the thing which is surprising, actually, I didn't put this one place on the map, but Hazazon Tamar is actually over here somewhere. So they came down, and then they also subjugated a whole other area before they got to the place where they were trying to crush this rebellious alliance of kings. Now you can imagine at the time that with this huge army passing through and all of the um, battles that they're winning, that the rumours and the word would have started going through the region. And one wonders at this time why Lot hadn't escaped to safety when he had the chance. And we, fortunately we don't have any answers in the text. But then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, verse 8, and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoah, marched out and drew their battle lines in the valley of Sidim, which is kind of over here, against Kedoleoma, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphal, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasa, four kings against five. It's noteworthy to realize that the five kings were all still alive after their massive conquest. They've essentially subjugated another nine people and entire territories. And even after this successful conquest, these kings decide to unite and still prepare for war. They don't send out some emissary to try to beg for pardon. You can also imagine that these kings have also acquired new vassals and have probably their army has grown, it hasn't shrunk in size. They're on a winning streak, 
Not only are they on a winning streak, they've defeated a whole bunch of people that had home court advantage, essentially, right? This is a winning streak on your away games, okay? So the battle starts, and even though, you know, the uh, king of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar, Zeboim, and Zoar have their home court advantage, they must have been shaking in their boots. And they've also been, they've had ample warning. So what happens? Verse 10. Now the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them and the rest fled into the hills. I don't know why it is just the king of Sodom and Gomorrah that are mentioned here. But the kings fled finally, whether they actually faced some, some form of battle and then ran away, or whether they just fled when they saw the sight of the oncoming army, or if they sneaked off, it's, it's hard to know. But essentially they were in their own geography. They knew this area. This was part of their kingdom. And yet they managed to get inundated with the tar pits which were there. There's actually some places in scripture where for fear people cast themselves into holes in the ground and some wonder whether this is actually what happened here. At the sight of what was happening at this onslaught, the kings threw themselves or some of their people threw themselves into holes to try to rescue themselves and the others fled to the hills. You'll note earlier in the passage that they've already conquered hill area but yet they're running to the hills for help. So here the, the kings, the rebellious kings have been cowed and they're fleeing now, facing the military might of the four kings of the east. Verse 11. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and then they went away. Essentially this doesn't sound just like they were plundering at the battle location. They're gone and they're going in and they're looting the actual cities of these kings. Not only are they taking all the goods, they're taking all of their foods. And at a time then when you were dependent on good harvests, essentially they're decimating these kingdoms. It's surprising for some reason the, the other kings are not mentioned here. It's only the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned here that are plundered. So basically they've got sufficient manpower to entirely dominate this entire area. They take all the food and then they start to leave. Not only that, in verse 12, they also carried off Abraham's, Abram's nephew Lot and all his possessions since he was living in Sodom. We don't know whether Lot was part of the battle. We're not sure. Maybe he was captured. But we do know that not only did they take Lot, they took all of his possessions, his wives and his children too. Now whether... Um, the women were in battle is highly unlikely. Now, at this point, why am I giving you so much geography? What is the point of all of this? I want us to realize the scale of the warfare that is happening here, the kind of distances which are kind of lost if you just, you know, you're doing your, I want to read through the Bible in the year and this is a, a boring passage of scripture. Realize the scale which is up there. You've got at least, if you do a great circle distance or a direct straight line, which they wouldn't have taken because it's just empty desert in between, it's at least a thousand kilometers. And if you take the entire route and how they're to go down and come back up, it is at least two thousand kilometers. 
To put that in words that we understand, it's further than driving to Toronto. It's like driving from Montreal to Detroit, actually, or from Montreal to PEI. It's pretty far. It's like from driving from London into the sea, you know, in England. <laughs> now, a battle, a set of trained um, soldiers with a load, which they would likely to have carried, can cover about 16 kilometers per day without completely wearing them out. So this is a sustainable um, metric of, of um, progress, so how, how fast you can advance. So you can start to realize how long this journey would have taken, at least three to four months. And then there were battles along the way. This is a testament to the military might, the logis logistical capability to mount such a long range and long campaign. Imagine the power of these kings that can command a tribute thousands of kilometers away. Not only have they got to mount this attack, but they have to be able to simultaneously protect their own regions whilst they're on the attack. There's no point coming and doing a massive campaign, and by the time they get back, their city doesn't exist anymore. Not only do they have to have the military might, they have to have this immense amount of logistical power. Imagine the supplies of food solely to supply the army for this massive journey. Sure, you'll get food supplies as you plunder people along the way. But still, it's a huge undertaking. Imagine the amount of military planning. The calc this is not like on a whim, they didn't give us our tribute, let's go. It's a long, it's a huge amount of planning which is required here. Imagine too the military might that they must have had because at this time we know from scripture that families were way more multi-generational than they were before, right? If you have a look at the, I think it's chapter 10 or so of Genesis, where it has how long people lived when they had family, it was not unlikely that five or six generations of people were alive at the same time. But why is that important? It's because of the knowledge transfer that can go from one generation to another. Imagine, actually, that Noah was still alive when Abraham was born. And Shem was still alive when all of this was happening. Ten generations earlier, you know. So you start to realize the might that these people had. And Abraham, having left his family, he didn't have all of this to pull on. Note too that some of the original architects of the Tower of Babel were probably still alive. So there was engineering genius that they had access to. Why do I make this point? Because they, they must have had an immense amount of military engineering power. That region where they came from, is also the region where Nimrod the warrior is from as well. So you can imagine this was a calculated campaign by a militar militarily powerful, a logistically calculated attempt this was. No doubt messengers were also sent ahead. And no doubt, there's, there's no mention that these kings were under tribute themselves. But we have to imagine that at least once before, the kings have made this trip before to get these kings to be under, under um, tribute. For they've been paying tribute for 12 years. Again, why all this data? Contemplate how hopeless this situation is. It's too easy for us to see the victory of Abram and just kind of gloss past it. 
in all likelihood at this point in the story, if you don't know what's happening in the future, Lot being captured, Lot is gone forever. Lot and his family is absolutely helpless. So the reason why all of this is brought up is this is an argument I'm making for the miraculous nature of this victory that Abram has. We cannot imagine that Abram had a strength of arms that could rival this alliance of kings from the east. If this is the type of military strength that Abram has, can God make good on his promises to give Abraham the land when this is what he has to contend with? We saw last week the land. Is the land sufficient? Is it going to be enough? You know, with a famine coming through. And now you see kings and kings and kings and kings. Is God going to be able to make good on his promise? Abraham is great in his victory, no doubt. But we must see the hand of God behind this victory. Abraham with his alliance. His, his allies were not kings. They were other families. 318 men. Kind of is a little bit reminiscent of Gideon going after the Midianites with 300 men. For the, and why did God choose 300 men? Intentionally so that the, the army size, it would be clear that God won the battle, right? No multi-generational wisdom to pull on from Abram. And at this time, when eight or nine generations lived, imagine what the other side had in terms of knowledge. So a number of cities were attacked and either decimated or made vassals. And surely it would not be wrong that the army that they were facing was massive. So after Lot is, ca is captured, we move on to verse 13. A man who had escaped and reported this to Abraham the Hebrew. Now it's interesting that Abraham the Hebrew is mentioned the first time Abraham is mentioned as the head of a people group, especially in light of the fact that at least seven or nine people group have just been decimated, almost wiped off the map in all likelihood. Additionally, there is no record of Abraham fighting before in Scripture. He was indeed a wealthy man, so maybe there was, a, I think in chapter, um, chapter 13, it says that he left Egypt with lots of silver and gold, so maybe there was an idea that this man was coming to tell Abraham so he could try to buy off the kings? How did he even know to come to Abraham? Maybe Abraham's name had started to get great after he had gone through the length and the breadth of the land in obedience to God at the end of chapter 13. Maybe Lot had charged him, this messenger, go and seek out Abraham, just tell him. Hopefully he'll be able to do something. Now I would like us to note here is that Lot is absolutely unworthy of being rescued at this point. He selfishly chose this region to live in. And these people were people that were wicked. It's noted in chapter 13. And yet he chose to live in close proximity with the wicked. Note too for Abraham that in going to fight against them, which is what we know he did in the end, he didn't go to barter, he would have been acquiring massively powerful enemies. Maybe it would just have been better for him to cut his losses and just say, look, Lot, no tough cheese, I'm sorry. 
but God promised me this land and I'd rather not get on the bad side of the kings that, are, that have the power to come and essentially crush this region. Surely this might, you know, it wouldn't have been so unwise, you know, to do that, you know. No, Lot, you know, I've got a covenant from the Lord, but it would be wiser if I don't do anything right now. By the way, you're not part of the covenant. I mean, the covenant was made to me after all, you know. Okay, so now Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eschol and Anna, all of whom were allied with Abram. Verse 14, when Abraham, when Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. You can see an immediate and reckless response from Abram. He gets every single fighting man. Why do we number the men right down to 318? It's because every last person is a significant person when you have that small of an army going against such a large army. Rumor must have passed through the land by now of the, the success and the victory of this alliance of kings. And Abraham goes and attempts a rescue. He was somewhere between 75 and 175 years old, so he wasn't a young man. And what about the promises of God? Now, we know in the previous passages that Sarah had been taken by the king of Egypt when Abraham was perhaps being a little bit um, untruthful about whether he, she was his wife. And there we saw the covenant hanging in the balance a bit. What happens if Sarah gets, you know, she gets taken by the king of Egypt? I mean, arguably, you could say Abraham could have married someone else and the covenant could still have come true. But here we see Abraham, his own life and the covenant in the balance, right? It's hanging by a thread. A massively risky venture. During the night, Abraham divided his men and attacked them. and He routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He routed them. So what happened basically, he took his 318 men, he divided them, and he attacked them by night, and he sprung a surprise attack. Routing an enemy basically means you do a surprise ambush that elicits a certain response. It elicits a response of a chaotic retreat where basically it's every man for himself, and the, the alliance crumbles. How did he manage to do this against such an immensely powerful army? Not just an army of one king, an alliance of kings. What spurred this action? And again, it reminds us a little bit of Gideon and the Midianites. Particularly of an army that had had such a winning streak, as I said. Especially after what is recorded after this alliance of kings conquest. And after su subduing Entire territories. He goes on, verse 16. He, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Every single person was rescued. Abraham emerges, emerges having saved one of his king, kin. All the alliance is defeated. The entire alliance is defeated. In all likelihood, Abraham has become the saviour, not only of Lot, but of the entire region. 
in defeating the kings and plundering them, he's also re-retrieved all the food and things like that that was confiscated, that was taken away with the intention of decimating these kingdoms. Verse 17. After Abram, Abram returned from defeating Kedolaoma and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Abraham rescues Lot, God protects Abraham's, and then the kings who had fled, the king of Sodom, comes out of his hiding place and he comes to meet him. What a contrast we see here. The contrast of the king of Sodom, who abandoned his people, and contrast that with Abraham, who doesn't even have the title of king, but essentially acts as protector of the land and of his people. This defeat would have ensured that the entire region was saved. You can already see you know, Abraham being a blessing to the nations. Abraham essentially rescued the kingdom of the king of Sodom, the king who had fled. But whilst we are talking about contrasts of Abraham versus the king of Sodom, let's take this contrast to a whole another level. In verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. All were rescued, Lot, possessions, wife, and, and the other people. And God's approval is seen in the benediction of Melchizedek. This blessing is bestowed by a priest of God Most High. God is to be praised for this victory. The scale, just see the scale of this victory. Praise be to God. God is to be praised for this victory. You can almost imagine Abraham singing, To God be the glory, great things he hath done. He wouldn't have said so loved he the world, because that part hadn't happened yet. But grasp the lens of what has happened here to see how great God is. And it is not just God saving a people. God is being faithful to his covenant, isn't he? The covenant which was being held by a thread as Abraham rushed to save Lot. God in faithfulness rescues him, rescues Lot, delivers the enemies into his hands. Grasp how great God's greatness is as king after king after king is suddenly mentioned in this book. And yet, who stands towering above this? Abraham, for sure, the unnamed king who's, who uh, rescues this region. Then this whole other level of greatness, this king who is also a priest, a priest king, eclipsing the greatness of Abraham. What is also highlighted in this greatness of God is he's not only a local God, he's God who can protect his people the length and breadth of the land. For it says that Abraham, Abraham pursued the enemy as far as Hobah, north of Damascus, which was beyond the, land, the lines of the land which was promised to him. So we see here the glory of Abraham too. And let's not diminish that because for sure Abraham here is a salvific figure. For who does Abraham point to more greatly? Is Christ our Saviour who at infinite loss covered an 
infinitely greater distance. Fighting against a foe which was far greater than this alliance of kings who came to save his unworthy kinsmen who by their own sinfulness were in the place and under bondage. Surely we cannot read this if we have our gospel glasses on and not see our beautiful Saviour. And at this moment of victory where Abraham points to Christ our Saviour, God reveals this whole another level of greatness. In the Lord of the Rings, uh, the great king um, Aragorn, when he returns to Gondor and uh, has defeated the armies of the witch king of Angmar, sorry, I'm a bit of a Lord of the Rings fan, <laughs> he doesn't enter the city and eventually he's called upon and there's a nurse there who says, who would have thought, he's called to the houses of healing, who would have thought that the king's hand that can wield the sword can also be a, can, that this king can also have healing hands a king who is a healer, two, two, uh, two great titles in one person. And here we see the same kind of greatness, two titles in one person, Christ, king and high priest, of a whole greater type of priesthood. John Calvin says, in the person of Melchizedek, in this mysterious person, amid the corruption, stands a true and upright cultivator and guardian of true religion. We get this new category, the priest-king. Perhaps something that is only hinted at in a very few places in Scripture. We see glimpses of it at the inauguration of the temple with King Solomon, I think. For sure, because King Solomon, the, the, the high priest, it's King Solomon that dedicates the temple, for sure. And you see glimpses of it. And yet ponder that this amazing category, priest-king, would be handed down from mouth to mouth and wouldn't be mentioned in Scripture for another thousand years before David in his great psalm, Psalm 110, one of my favorites, when the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And yet we would have to wait another thousand years before the full significance of who Melchizedek is, is clarified by the author to the writer of Hebrews. For in Melchizedek we see someone that resembles more precisely probably than any person in history, Christ our Saviour, who is said to have without, he's without beginning or end. He's part of an eternally appointed, he's an eternally appointed priest of an eternal priesthood, a priesthood which is not based on ancestry. He's of a higher priesthood. Actually, the writer in Hebrews says that the entire Levitical system paid tribute to Melchizedek as, as Abraham gave his tithe to Melchizedek. He's not only a priest of an entirely greater level, but he's also king of righteousness and king of peace showing his superiority in his, the way that he gives blessings to those who are less than him. And just as we have contemplated how precarious the covenant was at this point when Abraham went into battle, we have seen how precarious it was, and indeed we will see in the rest of the life of Abraham, and we will see throughout the 
entire Old Testament. Yet, at this particular point of victory, God reveals someone, Melchizedek, who points to Christ. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21, it says, But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. At this moment of victory, a person is revealed who points to the one who secures the covenant. Melchizedek points to Christ, the one who ensures that the blessing to the nation comes. And we who come on the other side of the cross can say hallelujah, for Christ has secured the blessing to the nations. Why does the author of Hebrews go to such lengths to talk about this priest king, Melchizedek? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. You don't hear that often in scripture. Clarifying. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by God, by the Lord, not by mere human beings. We look back knowing what, that the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant of the great nation and the land and the blessing to all nations, it points to Christ. John Calvin says, the sum of the whole is that Christ would thus be king next to God and also that he should be anointed priest and that forever which is very useful for us to know in order that we may learn that the royal power of Christ is combined with the office of priest. Calvin also goes on and he says, care not to attach too much significance to the bread and the wine which is mentioned in this passage, which is quite tempting. It is curious that this is mentioned, but really the emphasis here is that a whole greater category of person is revealed here of the supreme priesthood, the priest king. So last week, is the land sufficient? Is God able to protect in the midst of all of these kingdoms, each claiming their own turf and exerting their power? Can God stand as match against all of these kings? And yet we know that the inheritance of the promise is given by God's grace, by his benevolence. We know how secure the promise is because it is based on the very graciousness of God. It rests, and as the, uh, the writer, to, as Paul in, in uh, Romans chapter 4 says, this is why it's great that it all depends on faith since the inheritance rests on a promise. It is guaranteed, therefore. It is not a possibility it is a certainty. And in response to this benediction, Abraham gives a tenth of everything. It's not sure, I'm not sure whether it's a tenth of the spoils of war or a tenth of everything that he earns. But the tithe is given to Melchizedek. We know this from the book of Hebrews. And this shows by Abraham both his deference to this new category of person, the priest king, and the acknowledgement of the veracity of the benediction. He acknowledges that God is the one that gave the victory. You can almost imagine this act of the tithe saying these words, truly, truly, salvation belongs to our God. 
Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourselves. Now we literally go from the heights of heaven with the priest king, from the sublime and the incredible to the ridiculous. We come crashing down off that pinnacle peak right back down to earth with a vision of an incredibly unworthy king. There is no acknowledgement by the king of Sodom of God, Abraham, Melchizedek's benediction, Abraham's tithe. In one of the commentaries that Pastor Brent had lent me, living in the gap between promise and reality, the gospel according to Abraham, the commentator basically says, here is a study of contrasts. This unworthy king. John Calvin says, for without controversy, this solemn benediction by Melchizedek shows a symbol of his preeminent dignity. And if that's what is said of Melchizedek, this demand by the king of Sodom shows his absolute being out of tune and on a completely different wavelength of what is going on at this moment. What is his demand? Is essentially, give me more people that I may rule over even more even though I'm an unworthy king and I, de- and I desert my people. Note again that essentially it's Abraham who's rescued this entire region. So, as we talk about kings and kings and kings, we see oppressing kings, rebellious kings, kings that will flee and hide and desert their people. We see another king who doesn't bear the title of a king, Interestingly enough, the title in the, in the commentary that Pastor Brent had lent me, the title of this chapter is, In the Days of Good King Abram. For surely here was a man who didn't have the title of king but was fulfilling that role. John Calvin says, They that wish to defend themselves, uh, themselves by armed force, whenever any force is used against them, may note from this fact, frame a rule for themselves. Here we see Abram framing a rule for himself. Abraham costs his costly, potentially fatal rescue mission against all odds to save the undeserving lot. At this very moment, God would reveal a mysterious figure who would more precisely point to the superiority of Christ our Savior than any other man. And to the point that some have deemed this appearance of Melchizedek to be what they call a Christophany, a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. Whether that's the case or not, I don't think I'm qualified to say. But this whole new level of king has been revealed, the priest king. Surely, Abraham stands here as a man of faith, trusting in the provision of God, in the timing of God, standing, standing before this priest king, essentially saying, all praise for this victory will go to God most high. Verse 22, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you, may, you will never be able to say I made Abraham rich. The contrast here is the way he accepts and endorses the blessing of Melchizedek, which essentially says salvation belongs to the Lord. A costly endorsement, no doubt, and we see his wholeheartedness, but he won't even give a foothold that any part of this victory is due to the king of Sodom, or any of the spoils of war and the wealth that falls out of this is due to you, 
giving it to me. You will have no claim on this victory. Only God shall have claim on this victory. We can see too that even at this point with them dropping to this low level of demanding the spoils of war back from Abram, we can see God's forbearance in relenting from the complete destruction of the people of Sodom. He waited still. Their destruction would come, but not yet. Verse 24, I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who, were with, who, who went with me to Anna, Eskol, and Mamre, let them have their shares. We almost see the kingly command of Abram to the king of Sodom. We also see that those who had made covenant with Abram, who had allied with him, receiving the blessing and the spoils of war, small-scale fulfillment to the promise of Abram being a blessing to the nations. So what should we say in conclusion to all this? Well, there was one question I would like to raise. If Abraham gave his tithe, where was Lot's 100%? Where was Lot's donation for his salvation? Where was his response of grateful praise? Where was his endorsement that salvation is of the Lord? Secondly, how can we fail to see Christ in Abraham's rescue of Lot? We see the kingly nature of Abraham and yet even with him pointing to Christ and his kingly nature we see him totally eclipsed by this whole new category of person the priest king Melchizedek who more precisely points to Christ our Saviour than any man in history. So where are we in this story? We are the most unkingly like person who is represented in this story. We would love to say that we, represent, we are represented by Abraham or somehow Melchizedek even. Unfortunately, the person that resembles us the most is the unworthy and helpless lot. And yet, as we join together this morning, we remain those who have been rescued by that whole new category of king-priest who is revealed on that day of victory, the eternal priest king Christ, our saviour. And it is by him that we are saved. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture, which ultimately points us to Christ, our saviour, who's on an infinitely greater plane, Lord, than we often think about Lord and even as great as he is portrayed in this passage as priest king we know later Lord that he would even take a third office to his title Lord of a prophet, priest and king great in three ways Lord so as we come Lord seeing this victory help us to be reminded of how you've saved us as we see this victory Lord and the benediction of Melchizedek help us in our own ways, Lord, to also resound with the heart of that uh, response, Lord, which says salvation is of the Lord. And in Melchizedek pointing to Christ, help us to be, help our eyes and our vision of Christ to be enlarged to see how great and wonderful he is.
We pray that you would be with us and grant our lives to ever be more glorifying to Christ our Saviour. In Jesus' name.